Welcome to Strange Talk. Hello, strangers. Thank you for joining me on today's special episode of the Enfield Poltergeist. Did I say Grice? I meant Enfield Poltergeist. <laughs> I always somehow mess up the intro to every episode where I just sound cringy as fuck. But I thought, you're probably wondering, what the hell is that noise going on in the background? Well, I noticed that a lot of my reviews and a lot of people that tend to talk about my podcast, they said it sounds like good stories that you'd want to hear around the campfire. So I thought, why not? Let me just roll with it and just go with the campfire. So that's what you're hearing right now. So hopefully you feel all warm and nestled in whatever it is that you're doing and just sit by the fire and join me while we go over the case of the Enfield Poltergeist. So let's get into it. So, in 1977, a house in the North London suburb of Enfield was the scene of violent disturbances of apparently paranormal origin. The occurrences were similar to those reported in other cases of the poltergeist type, which include knockings and other noises with no apparent cause, doors opening and closing by themselves, furniture overturned, small objects hurled across rooms, picture frames ripped from walls, small fires that started and went out by themselves, and such like. The events continued for just over a year, and in many cases were witnessed by neighbors, investigators, technicians, press reporters, and broadcasters, police officers, and among others. In its later stages, the case was notable for the emergence of abusive and often obscene speech from the mouth of a 12-year-old girl. Tape recordings were made of the voice, which was gruff and masculine apparently that of an old man. Maurice Gross, a successful inventor, initiated an investigation soon after the start of the events on behalf of the Society for Psychical Research. Gross was soon joined by author and paranormal investigator Guy Leon Playfair, whose 1980 book This House is Haunted, an investigation of the Enfield Poltergeist, is the main source of information about the events. Detailed and broadly accurate reports published over a period of time by the Daily Mirror led to widespread attention by other newspapers and radio and television. The house in question is 284 Green Street, a three-bedroom, council-owned, semi-detached house dating from the 1920s. At this time, it was occupied by a family consisting of 47-year-old divorcee Peggy Hutchinson and her four children. I'm sorry, actually her, her last name is pronounced Hodgson. I don't know why I got the Simpson. <laughs> and her four children, Margaret, who was 13, Janet, who was 12 years old, and her son, John, 11, and her other son, Billy, who was seven. All except Janet are referred to in the house is haunted by pseudonyms, respectively, Peggy Harper, Rose, Pete, and Jimmy. So he changed their names when he wrote the book. Peggy Hodgson was considered by those who knew her to be a pleasant and conscientious person, overcoming financial insecurity due to her best for her children. Margaret was serious and reserved, Janet lively and extrovert. John was only at home during the school holidays 
and some weekends since he brooded at a special school. Billy suffered from a severe speech defect, but in other respects was a typical little boy. Miss Hodgson's brother, John Burcombe, a hospital worker, lived nearby at 272 Green Street with his wife Sylvia and two children Paul and Denise. The two families appeared to be close and John was supported towards the Hodgson's. The Hodgson's next door 282 neighbors were builder Vic Nottingham and his wife Peggy and their 20-year-old son Gary. Relations between the families were seen to be friendly and supportive. On 31st of August 1977 at around 9.30 p.m. The children Janet and John heard shuffling in their bedroom. Their mother entered the room and all three heard knocking sounds. A chest of drawers moved 18 inches across the room without any apparent physical contact. They immediately went to fetch help from the Nottinghams next door. Vic and Gary Nottingham entered and heard further knocks. Vic later stated that he could find no source for the knocks which seemed to follow him round the house. At this point, Peggy Nottingham called the police. WPC Heaps and PC Hames arrived at around 1 a.m. Heaps witnessed a chair move three to four feet across the living room floor without any physical contact. There were further knockings. Over the next few days, marbles and toy Legos building blocks appeared to fly around the house of their own volition, witnessed by members of the family and the Nottinghams. There followed visits by council officials, clergymen, and others, but none of these deterred the phenomenon, which continued unabated. On September 4th, Miss Nottingham phoned the Daily Mirror in the hope it would put her in touch with someone who could help. Reporter Douglas Bentz and photographer Graham Morris visited the house. Both men witnessed flying objects and the latter was hit on the forehead by a piece of Lego traveling at speed. He said the bruise was still visible some days later. On September 7th, senior reporter George Fallows and photographer David Thorpe visited the house. In early September, the Daily Mirror's Fallows contacted the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, and spoke to the secretary, Eleanor O'Keefe. O'Keefe got in touch with Maurice Gross, who had recently joined the organization and declared his willingness to act as an investigator if any interesting cases should arise. So he basically started, he basically joined this organization, the SPR or the Society for Psychical Research, and he wasn't really working on any cases, but part of me believes he wanted to become involved with this case because he's, it could probably launch his career within the SPR community. So I'm pretty sure that's why he jumped at the chance because this could be something big. It's kind of like a lawyer or an attorney. I mean, they're both the same thing, but it could basically be like, his OJ case, if you will, because that was a huge trial, it was a huge case, and it made a lot of fucking lawyers a lot of money, and it made a lot of them famous. I mean, Kim Kardashian's father was one of OJ's attorneys, so we all saw what happened with them. <laughs> Anyways, Gross was a successful inventor, responsible among many innovations for the rot rotating advertising billboard. His interest in paranormal phenomenon had been awakened by a series of meaningful coincidences that followed the death of his daughter, Janet, in August 1976, of head injuries sustained during a motorcycle accident. So basically where I got a lot of my research was from watching documentaries which you can find on YouTube, so if you're interested to see more about the case and actually see what the people look like, and you can hear interviews from both Gross 
um, and other people who joined him on the investigation. It's actually really interesting to see all of the documentaries. And later in this episode, you're going to be hearing the actual recordings of when they spoke to Janet, who was actually being possessed by the spirit who they come to find out is, you know, possessing Janet. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for that. You'll be able to hear the actual possession of her, if you will. And there's also, um, if you are subscribed to Hulu, there is a pretty interesting show. It's loosely based off of, so obviously it's more dramatized, but it's loosely based off of the Enfield Poltergeist incident. Um, and it's actually under the same name, the Enfield Poltergeist. It was done by the BBC and it's actually really good. Um, the actor who plays Maurice um, Gross was played by, I don't remember his name, but I'm trying to think of some movies, maybe you guys might be familiar with him. He plays the rat from Harry Potter. I don't remember the name, so if you're a Harry Potter fan and you know who I'm talking about, who I'm referring to, then that's the same actor who actually portrays Maurice Gross in the show made by the BBC called The Enfield Poltergeist. So if you want to watch like a dramatic representation of what occurred, then go ahead and watch that. But it is actually really good. I actually enjoyed it. On 8 September, Gross and three Daily Mirror reporters witnessed a loud crash. Convinced that Hodgson's claims were genuine, Gross how decided to take on the case. During subsequent visits, he and others observed marbles that flew through the air and landed on the floor without rolling, doors and drawers that opened of their own accord. I felt like a fucking Dr. Seuss rhyme right there. Door chimes that swung, objects, teaspoon, and cardboard box fish tank lids that jumped. The movements were witnessed by Gross. The Hodgson's, Peggy, Nottingham's father, and four reporters and photographers from the Daily Mirror. At this relatively early stage, as many as 10 people not related to the family had witnessed the phenomenon at first hand. Author and investigator Guy Playfair responded to an appeal to the SPR for assistance by Gross and arrived on 12th of September, along with Rosalind Morrison from BBC Radio 4. The world this weekend. He and Gross worked together for more than a year, making a total of 180 visits and 25 all-night vigils at the house. The incidents at Enfield are among the most closely recorded in any poltergeist-type case. Gross Playfair, Miss Hodgson, and other witnesses kept records of varying levels of detail. Tape recordings mainly by Playfair and Gross eventually totaled over 180 hours of recorded interviews and evidence. An incomplete list is as follows, which I'll be naming off occurrences that they claimed happened within the Enfield home. Marbles and pieces of Legos seen traveling through the air at great speed, seemingly emanating from walls or windows. A teapot shook vigorously on a cabinet in the absence of any external vibration. Metal spoons bent bent and the lid of a metal teapot was deformed, the shade of a bedside lamp tilted and then straightened. A toilet door opened and closed when nobody was nearby, cardboard boxes and cushions were thrown by an unknown force, a slipper was thrown across a room by an unknown source, a framed certificate was pulled off the wall, Gross was just alone in the room when that occurred, a bedroom carpet was pulled up at the edge to form an identical shape each time an effect which Gross was unable to replicate. A settee was levitated and overturned in front of several witnesses. 11-year-old Janet was levitated and deposited in different places at different times. Kitchen unit doors slid open of their own accord. Tubular door chimes swung from side to side many times. 
Footsteps were heard when nobody else was present. 12-year-old Margaret was held fast by an unknown force, meaning she was basically stuck in a certain position or angle, and she was unable to move, and nobody was able to move her from the position as which she was. Knocks, bangs, and crashes heard, not caused by plumbing, vibration, or other external sources. sources. Coins disappeared from one room and reappeared in another. Small fires started and extinguished themselves without causing any damage whatsoever. Water appeared in circumstances not understood. Normally reliable electrical equipment, tape recorders and cameras such as that, failed to work. Apparitions were seen partial and total. The iron frame of a built-in fireplace was wrenched from the wall, meaning it was tore from the wall. Excrement appeared in inappropriate places, so pretty much there was shit, fucking human fecal matter, okay? Poop, poop, right? I'm talking poop, was just popping up out of nowhere. But to be honest with you, I'm a little bit of a skeptic, so I think it was just the kids just fucking with people. And they, maybe it was egged on by their mother, but somebody was literally taking shits around the house for no reason. They're like, I, you, I, yeah, I want to say it was probably like one of the crewmen that was there and doing the investigation with Gross. And they're like, fuck, man, I gotta take a shit, but the kids are taking a shower. And, and they're like, oh, like, well, you just gotta take shit over there. And he, he's like, no, I can't do that. So he just decides to do it anyways, and they're, they're like, who took a shit in the house? And he's like, oh, it was the poltergeist. Yeah, that, that's what it was. <laughs> Ex uh, written messages, like, such on the fridge, on the floor, on the walls. There was uh, written messages all over the wall sometimes that would just appear. And um, it's not really known what was said. Some of them, I believe, said, like, get out. Um, you know, basically the usual affair when it comes to hauntings. The abusive remarks and swear words in a gruff, masculine voice apparently produced by Janet and sometimes Margaret. Some effects occurred simultaneously. Many were repeated at different times and places both day and night. Some were seen by members of the public who, in many cases, had no interaction with the Hodgson family. They included John Rainbow, a local tradesman, Richard Gross, a solicitor, and Hazel Short, a road crossing council employee, lollipop lady. I don't know what that means, but I maybe she sold lollipops? I don't know, because it's just in brackets. <laughs> Short told Playfair that she had been walking towards number 284 to pick up her lollipop sign. Oh, now I remember, the lollipop sign was basically a stop sign. That's what she considered like a lollipop, because, you know, stop signs are shaped like lollipops which she normally concealed under the hedge at the front of the house. I was standing there looking at the house when all of a sudden a couple of books came flying across and hit the window. It was so sudden. I heard the noise because it was so quiet. There was no traffic and it made me jump. This is basically her account. Then after a little while, I saw Janet. I don't know if there's a bed underneath that window, but she was going up and down bodily as though someone was just tossing her up and down bodily in a horizontal position, like as if someone had got hold of her legs and back and was throwing her up and down. So basically what she was saying, if, you're, if it sounds confusing to you, it she was basically levitating, like as if somebody, an unknown force, like if somebody was invisible and was picking her up and down and th like throwing her up and down. So she was basically levitating. I definitely saw her come up about window height but I thought if she was bouncing, she'd bounce from her feet. She wouldn't be able to get enough power to bounce off her back to come up that high. My friend could see her as well. We both could see her. 
WPC Caroline Heaps testified to the investigators as follows. This is what she said. On Thursday, the 1st of September, 1977, at approximately 1 a.m., I was on duty in my capacity as a policewoman when I received a radio message to 284 Wood Sick Street, Enfield. I went to this address where I found a number of people standing in the living room. I was told by the occupier of this house that strange things had been happening during the last few nights and that they believed that the house was haunted. Myself and another PC entered the living room of the house and the occupier switched off the lights. Almost immediately, I heard the sound of knocking on the wall that backs onto the next door neighbor's house. There were four distinct taps on the wall and then silence. About two minutes later, I heard more tapping, but this time it was coming from a different wall. And again, it was a distinctive peal of four taps. The PC and the neighbors checked the walls, attic and pipes, but could find nothing to explain the knockings. The PC and the neighbors all went into the kitchen to check the refrigerator pipes, leaving the family and myself in the living room. The lights in the living room were switched off again and within a few minutes the eldest son pointed to a chair which was standing next to the sofa. I looked at the chair and noticed that it was wobbling slightly from side to side. I then saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. It moved approximately three to four feet and then came to a rest. At no time did it appear to leave the floor. I checked the chair, but could find nothing to explain how it had moved. The lights were switched back on. Nothing else happened that night, although we have later reports of disturbances at this address. So that was basically a police officer in the UK that was giving her account of what occurred when she went to the Enfield home. And here's another one. George Fallows, the Daily Mirror reporter, gave this account of events that he witnessed. Because of the emotional atmosphere at the house and in the neighborhood, ranging from hysteria through terror to excitement and tension, it has been difficult to record satisfactory data. Nevertheless, I am satisfied the overall impression of our investigation is reasonably accurate. To the best of our ability, we have eliminated the possibility of total trickery, although we have been able to simulate most of the phenomenon in my opinion, this faking could only be done by an expert. In December of 1977, three months after the start of the disturbances, an anomalous voice began to emanate from Janet. It started as a series of whistles and dog-like barks and developed into a human voice, that of an elderly male, harsh and guttural and quite unlike Janet's. The voice identified itself as Joe Wilkins. A pseudonym, Joe Watson, was later changed in This House is Haunted, the book written about the accounts of the Enfield poltergeist, and claimed that he had lived in the house. The previous occupant was in fact a Mr. Wilkins, later found out through investigating, who had died in the house, a fact seemingly unknown to Janet. It habitually swore and claimed to still be living and to sleep in Janet's bed. Interrogated by Richard Gross, Maurice Gross' son, a solicitor, the voice gave further details. I went blind, and I had a hemorrhage, and I fell asleep, and I died on a chair in the corner downstairs. To eliminate the possibility that Janet was herself faking the voice, Gross taped up Janet's mouth. The voice continued to be heard, somewhat subdued, as was the case on future occasions when Janet's mouth was also filled with water. Early in January 1978, 
Margaret started to speak in a similar harsh voice, but without the same intensity or duration as Janet's, which actually led a lot of skeptics to believe that it was simply just them doing this as a way to seek attention, and Margaret was doing it more to, to gain the same attention as her sister Janet was receiving, because since there was a documentary made about it, a lot of the local newspapers and, and, and news media actually went to go see and investigate the house themselves, so Janet was actually kind of receiving a lot of attention, so skeptics were quick to point out that maybe it was just them just doing it for attention, and they were either being egged on by their mother, or, you know, Maurice Gross was just, you know, egging them on themselves to just heighten it up so they can get garner more media attention so he can further his career in the psychical research organization. Many hours of recordings of the voice were made. A contact microphone placed on the back of Janet's head picked up what appeared to be a different and louder sound than her normal voice. A speech therapist approached by the investigators was unable to say where the sound was coming from or how it was being sustained. It had some remblance to a false vocal cord tone. John Hassid, a physicist at London's Burbeck College, carried out an experiment together with Adrian Forsen a phonetics expert at University College in London. Tests with a laryngograph indicated an effect known as pollica ventriquilius, where muscle tension in the throat can produce sounds independent of the vocal cords. However, there are known side effects in this condition, and at around six weeks of hoarseness and a sore throat, neither of which were exhibited by Janet. So basically, they, con they concluded and that after their experiment and their test on Janet, that if she was to truly be doing the pollica ventriquilius, she would be suffering from side effects of that, which are hoarseness and a sore throat, but she exhibited none of those and she, they were kind of puzzled. So I guess it's more evidence to further show that it is a poltergeist or she is being possessed. Ray Allen, a ventriloquist, felt that the voice was being produced via the diaphragm, but this was disputed by Gross and Playfair. Gross was so convinced of the paranormal origin of the effect that he offered 500 pounds and later changed it to 1,000 pounds to a nominated charity if any child could replicate the voice under the terms he specified. Nobody took up this offer. He was further encouraged in his conviction that the voice had an unknown source when reading of similar historical cases from people suffering possession. For example, at the moment when the continuance alters, a more or less changed voice issues from the mouth of the person in the fit, the top register of the voice is displaced. The feminine voice is transformed into a bass one. There have been more recent reports of a similar phenomenon. In 2012, Professor Richard E. Gallagher, New York Medical College, reported that a woman known as Julia would enter a trance and utter obscenities in voices completely different than her own. In 2014, Police in Indiana in the U.S. investigated a case where the children of LaToya Ammons displayed what she took to be signs of demonic possession, such as speaking in unnaturally deep voices. Varying other methods of investigation were undertaken by a number of people between August of 1977 and October of 1978. In May of 1978, the Society for Psychical Research commissioned a committee to investigate the investigation consisting of Mary Rose Barrington, Hugh Pincott, Peter Halson, and John Stiles. 
They carefully interviewed many of the witnesses, considered much of the testimony to be clear and convincing. They also sought expertise from Charles Moses of the Southern California Society for Psychical Research, an experienced investigator. The committee concluded that there was good evidence for paranormal phenomenon described by credible informants, though judgment was reserved on incidents that could not have been clearly observed, or where witnesses were found to not be entirely convincing. They were wary of arbitrating a paranormal origin to Janet's other voice. Barrington felt personally satisfied that paranormal events took place at Enfield and considered the tearing away of the fireplace an item of poltergeistry of the first order. Physicist John Hassid found that Janet's body increased in weight when she was strapped to a Blundell couch device to measure such anomalies. He reported two sudden five-second weight increases, signals of about one kilogram, and a minute gradual weight increase, which eventually returns to normal, an anomaly he was unable to explain. He was further intrigued by a light bulb that exploded in an unusual way, finding that one of the glass supports on which the filament was mounted had snapped, an event he considered very rare. Physicist David Robertson carried out experiments at Enfield. He attempted to video Janet secretly, <laughs> but found it impossible to conceal the equipment from her. I don't know, <laughs> it's just funny because he's like secretly videotaping her fucking pervert. He reported a levitation of Janet the teleportation of a large cushion to the house roof, the overturning of a sideboard, his head being struck by a flying plate, his hair pulled when she slept on the floor of the front room. So th this is also where other skeptics claim that it's probably just her, um, just pulling his hair and stuff like that. A local psychiatrist examined the girls and maintained that the if they were left alone, the disturbances would stop. This did not happen, however. Janet was given a detailed physical and psychological assessment at London's Maudsley Institute of Neuropsychiatry by Dr. Peter Fenwick. No abnormality was discovered, such as damage to the brain or evidence of, alepsy, of epilepsy. Alepsy. Hypnosis similarly failed to uncover any evidence of psychological frailty. Playfair undertook some research that found similar similarities with some manifestations of Tourette syndrome including explosive utterances, barking, and swearing. When medical doctors were called out, they usually prescribed calming drugs to help Janet sleep. National press reporters, photographers, and television crews used different approaches to try to uncover the reason for the phenomenon. Some introduced professional magicians to try to discover fraudulent activity. Others brought spirit mediums to make contact with the haunting entity. Two Brazilian mediums, Luis Casa Pareto and Alice Dubagars. <laughs> I don't even think I said those right at all. Apparently had some beneficial effect on Janet's behavior. A somewhat theoretical performance by another medium, I'm sorry, theatrical performance by another medium, Gary Sherrick, also resulted in relative calm for a short while. Matthew Manning, a healer and psychic, visited the Hodgson's wishing to share knowledge of such events from his own experience which he believed originated from an individual's own energy. Manning said he had experienced headaches of a similar nature Peggy Hodgson's at times when phenomena was about to take place. So he pretty much had like a spider sense because he knew that like some shit was going to go down because he, he, he gained a lot of energy from Peggy Hodgson, that's what he claimed. Dono Gemeglig Mayling, a Dutch healer, a Dutch healer and clairvoyant, 
visited in October of 1978, finding connections between the incidents and the death of Gross's daughter. Gross and Playfair conceded that Margaret and Janet had sometimes tried to trick them, but insisted these occasions were very few, that they were quickly to discover and that the girls had then admitted their, their basically their pranks. Indeed, they held that it would have not been normal if the children had not tried to copy what they were seeing happen all around them. Janet later admitted that they cheated about 2% of the time. The family and direct neighbors believed the phenomenon to be real. Those who knew Peggy Hodgson had no doubts about her personal integrity. However, some potentially credible witnesses disputed the veracity of the phenomenon, often after just a few visits and in some cases without having visited at all. Media coverage was typically trivial and sensationalist, with headlines such as Terror for Family and Spook Riddle, Ghost Hunters Clash Over Mystery of Spook and Spoof Kids, and Phantom Fred is a Force to Fear, accompanied by a ghostly image of Playfair. This House is Haunted was published in 1980. It was reviewed skeptically by Anita Gregory, a SPR member and investigator who had visited Enfield with John Beloff in December of 1977. The pair argued that the girls enjoyed play acting. Gregory alleged that John Burcombe told her that Janet taught herself the trick of talking in a deep voice and that she enjoyed keeping strangers hopping around. Gregory also stated that Peggy Nottingham had told her that what was going on now was pure nonsense and it was kept going by the investigators. After rejoiners from Gross, Gregory repeated her suspicion regarding the paranormal lead of the girl's voices and her belief that Playfair's book was far too sketchy, unsystematic, imprecise, and ambiguous and confusing to be seen as a contribution to research. Melvin Harris, an author of Debunking Books, analyzed the photographs in This House is Haunted, concluding they showed the girls indulging in spirited hijinks and forcefully denying that they could be held to represent paranormal events. In reply, Perry Playfair defended the photographs as follows. This is what he said. On the curtain twisting sequence, Harris suggests that the curtain has simply been hit by the bedclothes and knocked off the window ledge. He does not explain how the curtain then moves into the room, as it can plainly be seen to do in the first picture, instead of towards the window, as one might expect. Nor does he explain how it moves to the right, the opposite direction to that of the bedclothes, and then twists into a tight spiral. In the pillow sequence, he does not explain how the pillow, how the top pillow doubles up in mid-air and changes direction, which it clearly does. Had both pillows been thrown with one hand by Rose, they would presumably have followed the same trajectory and landed together, which they do not. Such movements, he says, easily corresponds with those to be found in commonplace everyday events, not in the world that I live in. In a later response to Gregory, Gross defended himself against her criticisms and pointed out that she had conceded the case included some good evidence and testimony, being answered in turn by Gregory with more criticism, including a complaint about the lack of evidential video footage. Gross and Playfair published further reflections some years later in 1988. Here they drew attention to the large number of written and spoken testimonies from witnesses. They described in detail the constant and anomalous problems that they and professionals had experienced with the sound and video recording, equipment when trying to capture the evidence, 
They bewailed the lack of balance shown in some of the sections of the media, denouncing that many inaccuracies, distortions, and half-truths and blatant lies about the Enfield case that have found their way over the years into print or radio and TV programs. Some journalists, they revealed, had tried unsuccessfully to bribe a next-door neighbor, Mrs. Nottingham, with a thousand pounds if she would state that the events were all a pack of lies. She and her family subsequently made signed statements repudiating allegations of faking. So basically they signed a document stating that that what happened is what really happened. They they were so adamant that it did that this really happened like there was a poltergeist there was a, there was a haunting. So they basically said well, you know it's a thousand pounds. I don't know what that is in American money but I imagine it's kind of a pretty good chunk of money. Professional skeptics continue to criticize the Enfield investigation. In 2012, Janet appeared on the television program This Morning with Playfair and Deborah Hyde, editor of The Skeptic magazine. Criticism by Hyde of views put forward by Mary Rose Barrington led to correspondence by both parties in a later edition of the magazine. Barrister and the Psychical Research Council member Alan Morty returned to the topic in a later magazine article arguing that Hyde had wasted an opportunity to ask detailed questions, preferring instead to speak in generalizations. Towards the end of his life, Gross was much occupied with defending his investigation of the Enfield events, writing articles for a wide range of publications and speaking at conferences. In 1995, he took part in an edition of the popular ITV television program Strange But True with presenter Michael Aspill. Two years later, having been attacked by the psychologicalist Nic Nicholas Humphreys in Channel 4's Is There Anybody There?, he appeared in its Right to Reply program to give his version of the events. A dispute over the 1992 BBC drama Ghostwatch, which was modeled on some aspects of the Enfield case, Playfair received a settlement out of court. In 1998, Gross took court action against the comedian David Bedell for giving his name to a character in his novel Time for Bed, a psychic investigator who runs away with a married woman. Bedell paid out of court and the winnings went to a charity. Gross appeared in a French documentary, The Strange Odyssey, in 1995. He was interviewed by a Japanese film company in 1996, at which time Terry Wilkins, a son of the former occupant of the Enfield house and pituitive entity Bill Wilkins, confirmed that his father had died in the house many years earlier in the circumstances that Janet's voice had described. So basically the son of Joe Wilkinson's actually came on and said, yeah, my father was actually discovered dead in that chair. So basically like what the voice of Janet said was actually true. So that seems pretty interesting. So it further like asserted that Gross was basically saying like, yes, we basically found evidence of the afterlife. Peggy Hodgson died in 2003. Her older son John died in 1981 at age 14. Janet left home at 16, married young, and suffered the loss of her son when she was aged 18. Maurice Gross unfortunately died in 2006. Peggy Hodgson avoided publicity after the disturbances subsided in 1978, but never changed her position about the anomalous nature of what she experienced. Billy, a young child at the time, remained largely indifferent to the events. He, ne he didn't really care, pretty much. Both Janet and Margaret had made brief appearances on television documentaries insisting on the genuineness of the phenomenon. 
Asked in 20, 2011 newspaper article whether she believed the house was still haunted, Janet said, years later, when my mom was alive, there was always a presence there, something watching over you. Janet is now age 45, mentioned having been bullied at school as a result of the incidents, being nicknamed Ghost Girl. She also mentioned having played with the Ouija board before the trouble flared up. She said she had been unaware that she went into trances until shown the photographs. She said, she went on to say, I knew when the voices were happening, of course. It felt like something was behind me all of the time. They did all sorts of tests, filling my mouth with water and so on, but the voices still came out. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you were going to land. I remember a curtain being one around my neck. I was screaming and I thought I was going to die. After Peggy Hodgson died, the house was briefly occupied by mother of four, Claire Bennett, who stated, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. Her sons would wake in the night, hearing people talking downstairs. Bennett then found out about the house's history. Suddenly, it all made sense, she said. The family moved out just after two months. The house is currently occupied by another family who do not wish to be identified. The mother says, I've got children, they don't know about it, I don't want to scare them. So basically that's it of the, the, the Enfield poltergeist and everything that occurred within the home. But that's where a lot of the skeptics come into play. The article that I have found during my research and everything doesn't necessarily say it, but they're in the documentary and in the BBC. Um, that was actually made about the Enfield Poltergeist under the same name, Enfield Poltergeist, that I talked about earlier in the episode. Um, they basically said that they kind of felt that Gross was seeing in Janet uh, all the occurrences and everything. They had a quite close bond. And so they believe that's why it was kind of like he was so adamant about staying with them and staying the night and being there because he kind of, like I said earlier, filled the void of when his daughter Janet passed away due to a motorcycle accident. So I hope you guys enjoyed it, but uh, now I'm going to play for you the voices, the, the actual interview, all the interviews that they have of when they recorded the voices. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to play that right now. And I want you guys, I, I want, what do you guys think? Do you think it's her just doing the voices? Is she able to produce that sound or is it simply just she's actually possessed? Let's find out. Let me hear you say my name. Come on, let me hear you say my name. That's not my name. Come on, my name's Morris. Let me hear you say it. Morris. Say Dr. Bellock. Come on, let me hear you say that. Come on, let's hear you say Dr. Bellock. Say, say Dr. Bellock. Now, if you squeak the bed, I can't hear you talking. Now, say Dr. Bellock. Come on. Come on, say it for me, Dr. Bellon. 
ังจัดได้แล้วว่าไหนคือมาแล้วชาติไหนดูมันเต็มที่จะวิ่งแล้วก็ยังคงจุ่มมาไว้ก่อนให้ได้ให้ได้ที่จะเวรีนะนี่
So sorry about the the last interview. It was just basically um, the either supposedly the possessed uh, spirit, the spirit possessing Janet, uh, supposedly lashing out. Um, but if it's sketchy, I'm sorry because it got me off guard too when I first heard it and I was listening to it. But basically, what you heard was all the recordings of all the interviews just mashed up into one compilation. And the first set of ones are basically her just barking. Um, th that's supposedly what she did sometimes when she was being possessed by the spirit Joe or Bill Wilkinson. Um, and in the second set of ones, you can't really make out what he's saying. And I'm sorry for the audio, qu audio quality, but that's basically me just prettying it up and trying to enhance it and amplify it as much as I could. Because if I amplified it anymore, it would sound really distorted and it wouldn't be pleasant to hear at all. Although it wasn't even pleasant to hear to begin with. But the one that you could hear the most clearest was when uh, Morris um, basically asked if like if you remember when you died which is basically one of the greatest pieces of evidence that he claims he has from the interviews was about the details she had given when he died in that corner chair so that's what you could hear if you can't really hear it out but the one before that interview if you couldn't really make out what um, the possessed Janet was saying she was basically saying like I used to live here get out this is my place you know just basically your typical fucking haunting shit but uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know it was a little different. Uh, let me know what you guys think about this whole campfire thing. Is it cool? Is it stupid? Is it very distracting? Please. I know there are a few of you that will let me know. So please do so and let me know if you liked it. If you think it's a cool little gimmick or whatever. And I'll keep doing it. If not, then, you know, whatever attempt was made at least. Um, also, I'm doing the giveaway as of right now. I'm finally <laughs> doing the giveaway. So, um... The giveaway is not going to end until Friday, um, February, what is that, what day is that actually, February 15th. So you have until f the 15th of February to do what you got to do, so go and look up at Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram so you can see the details of the giveaway and how to enter it. What I'm going to be giving away is a t-shirt with the logo Strange Talk on there as well as a coffee mug with the logo strange talk podcast as well and a funko pop um i already shown what the funko pop is it's going to be a pennywise the dancing clown if you already have that one then and you're a winner then you know go ahead and message when you message me your details just let me know oh i already have that one and then you can choose one that you want within reason i guess and you can choose one that you want and i will gladly send it your way if you are the chosen lucky winner so you have until the 15th of february to do the giveaway and enter all you gotta do is just like the post repost it um with the hashtag strange pod giveaway and then uh, just comment done on the post when you did it so that way i know that you did it and then you know that's you being entered and, it, and for a double entry you can either you know give me a review on itunes but even though you don't just do it simply for <laughs> the contest if you really enjoy strange talk podcast feel free to just you know give me a review and, and you know write it out you know just hit those stars whatever you feel I deserve if you like it or not and you know go on your merry way and keep listening to more episodes so uh, be prepared for another This Week in Crime uh, going to be available on Wednesday as always uh, This Week in Crime is basically where I gather news articles related to crime or just interesting weird funny fucked up news articles that I find interesting from here in good old America or from around the world so be prepared for your ear holes to listen to another This Week in Crime. 
Hopefully you guys enjoyed all the information that was around the Enfield Poltergeist. The Enfield Poltergeist wasn't really like a scary thing. I imagine maybe it was scary to you witness it but like i said go watch the documentaries on youtube you can find them on youtube they're free they're, they're kind of interesting they're pretty good if not and you want to you know kind of be scared or at least see a, a dramatization of the enfield poltergeist go and look up I, I think it's still available on hulu it's the enfield poltergeist on hulu uh from the bbc they made a show about it it was actually really good really entertaining um, or watch The Conjuring too if you want to watch that, but to be honest with you, I don't like The Conjuring movies. I don't like them. I hate them. I don't think they're that great. I feel like they're, they're like super overhyped because I feel like the director was his name, James Wu, whatever the fuck his name is. He relies too much on pop-up scares and it's not because they scare me or whatever. It's just because I, I feel like it's super cheap. I feel like at that point I'm sitting through a haunted maze. It's like I'd rather just go to a haunted maze and have a more interactive experience than actually sit through a movie that's mimicking a, like a haunted maze, like a Universal Studios or fucking not scary farm. So that's why I don't really care for the Conjuring movies. I feel like they're overhyped. Speaking of movies, I happened to watch the the new Halloween that recently came out. I didn't really like it. <laughs> I guess I just have really high standards. It was okay. It just I didn't really like it that much. It wasn't as great as I was hoping it would be. Um, it was cool. I just, I just didn't really care for it too much. It wasn't like the other ones, and obviously nothing's gonna beat the original. But it was, it, it just, I didn't. It wasn't really my cup of tea. I'm looking forward to the the Chucky movie that's coming out. Actually, the remake of the Child's Play, um, especially because I'm in love with Aubrey Plaza. She is so beautiful. But anyways, I digress. I can't wait to actually see that movie. I'm looking forward to that. Another movie I'm actually looking forward to. There's some. Oh, also, I'm excited because Guillermo del Toro is not directing it. It's actually another guy directing the movie. He's just simply a creative uh, mind on it, and he's the executive producer for um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, I think it's called. But it's based off of those children books that were kind of creepy. A lot of them were cool. I liked that they were just really interesting little tales you could tell. I thought they were pretty cool. But yeah, that movie's coming out. And, you know, so it's going to be a pretty fun, fun year for movies, I'd say. So, thank you guys for joining me on this episode of the Enfield Poltergeist. Hopefully you learned something new or you found it interesting nonetheless. But feel free, please, feel free to tell me if you guys enjoyed the whole campfire thing. You like the gimmick or whatever. So that way I don't have to do it anymore. Or if you guys like it, I keep doing it. I just thought it would be interesting to do, to kind of play with that idea. Because a lot of my reviews said it's like stories you listen to around the campfire. So, as always, stay strange.